Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And today we're talking to Eric Motley. We've heard from Eric before about his life in a place called Madison Park, Alabama. Madison Park was the first plantation to be bought by former slaves, and Eric told us that they came together and formed a community, a community that would eventually raise Eric. Eric, you talk about how one of the most pivotal stories happened while you were at Samford University involving your pledging at a fraternity. It was a moment that displayed both the best and the worst in people. Tell us about that. I was too naive to really know what a fraternity was. I arrived, Samford was predominantly a white university, in as much as the majority of the students there were people not of color. Maybe there was four or five percent of, of a colored population, people of color, and that's minorities, Hispanic and African Americans. And uh, But I, I was in a wonderful Christian community, and people embraced me, and they seemed to be interested in me in as much as I was interested in them. And uh, for sure, maybe I was a bit eccentric, and um, I was so intense on getting an education that everyone in the university knew that I was the first in the library in the morning and the last to leave the library. And, and that became a bit of a joke, but a wonderful joke, an endearing joke. And then there were a group of upperclassmen who became friends, and they encouraged me to go through Rush because they thought it was a wonderful opportunity for me to meet more people and to be a part of a club that they were a part of, to experience something they felt fulfilling. And so I, I went through this experience with this fraternity, and I felt really good about the people that I had met and their encouragement. But unbeknownst to me, underneath all of this, there were parents who were greatly disturbed by the concept of this fraternity being integrated let alone at Sanford, but in the state of Alabama, because it had yet to be integrated in Alabama. And so those parents, uh, and parents have wonderful influence, as well as oftentimes uh, not so great influence on us, uh, greatly express their concerns to their kids and, and encourage them to oppose me. And to make a very long story short, but interesting, on the very night that a vote was to be taken, uh, I was going to be blackballed. And there were a group of students who had organized themselves and their arguments around all the reasons that I should not be a member of this fraternity. And they were not really sound reasons. And one student found a group of them singing a song using not so great lyrics or words that are not great, or words that we're told not to use now about people of color. And that student and a group of other students did what they believed was right. There were a group of about six or seven students who had gone to the final four up in Atlanta, Georgia. And someone wrote them, called them, and said, it doesn't look like it's going to be promising for Eric. And I know that you wanted to be here for the vote and that you were going to get here at the end of the meeting, but it might require your getting here as soon as possible. And they left the final four. Could you believe that? These college seniors leaving the final four basketball competitions 
and driving some five to six hours back to Birmingham in order to be at a fraternity meeting at the start of it so they could address their fellow fraternity members. And they challenged them. And they said, you know, the reasons that you're given are not the reasons why. And we are aware that a good number of your parents have reached out to others to encourage them to vote against Eric. But there is no way that we can graduate after four years of being here and after the experience of getting to know this guy and not believing in doing what is right and really stepping up. And to me, it's a wonderful reminder that from time to time, we're all called to challenge the moral complacency of a leisure and secular society that we're all called to do what's right. In that same letter that we referenced about Martin Luther King, there's a line that disturbs me. He said, it's, it's not the people who are overtly doing wrong. It is the deafening silence of the good people that disturb me most. And in that one moment, these seven, eight young men decided that they would take off their fraternity pins and lay them on a table and to say that we feel so strongly about doing what is right that we're willing to give up our membership in this group. And in that one quiet, unheralded act, they influenced all of the members of that fraternity, save one, to vote for my membership. Now, what is beautiful and profound about that story is not just that unheralded act of heroism, but the fact that I did not learn until I had moved here to Washington, D.C. So that's from 1996 to 2001. I did not learn the narrative that took place. And it took place because one friend of mine who had had too much to drink one night phoned me and ended up telling me more than he ever planned on telling me about what actually transpired. And what I learned was that a, those same group of students organized themselves and paid my fraternity dues for those two years. They never wanted me to know the story. They never wanted me to know the names of the students who opposed me. They only wanted me to experience the community that they believed could be realized when good people do what is right and encourage other people who are good to overcome their prejudices. And that is Eric Motley and one heck of a story about so much, so many important things in that story. Madison Park is the name of the book. It's filled with stories like this, a remarkable place, a remarkable upbringing, a remarkable community. Madison Park, A Place of Hope. Go to Amazon.com and get it. Eric Motley's story, his fraternity story, not like the rest of the pledges, but my goodness, what lessons learned about life and about courage here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our series, Heroes of the Second World War. And our source material in this series comes from Rishi Sharma, a young man that has spent his life traveling the world interviewing over a thousand Allied soldiers of World War II. In this series, we bring you their stories in their own words. Here's our very own Joey Cortez with the latest installment. In 1939, Adolf Hitler was determined to conquer Europe. On September 1st, he invaded Poland. One year later, the United States instituted a military draft, hesitantly preparing for war. Germany, Italy, and Japan formed the Axis powers, hoping to dissuade America from entering the war. And it worked, until Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. The United States entered the war and expanded its draft. More than 10 million Americans were inducted into the military to fight these evil regimes, protect our democratic ideals, and liberate an oppressed people around the world. These men, the true heroes of the Second World War, have given us the free and full lives we live today. These are their stories. My name is Edward Hall, and I was stationed at Hickam Field in Hawaii on December the 7th, 1941, when the Japanese surprised us with an attack that devastated the whole island. I had taken a job in the mess hall as a permanent KP. So, on that particular morning, I'm cleaning a skillet, and all of a sudden, foomph. Then I hear another foomph, a little bit louder. And then I heard explosions like you wouldn't believe. Up the street, to my right, I ran to the back door, and I looked at my right, and I saw a hangar seven and nine blowing up. Planes flying everywhere. And then here come one straight across at me, kicking the asphalt up coming straight at me. He was so low on the ground, he was coming straight at me firing. But he had to pull up to miss the electrical wires and the building I was standing in. When he pulled up, he was looking straight at me and I was looking at him, the pilot. And this only happened, oh, just a flash. It happened quicker than I can tell it. We were looking at each other, he smiled at me, and that was it. And I thought, you son of a gun, you're having a ball, aren't you? And you're scaring the hell out of me. From there, I ran outside. I couldn't believe that this was happening, but I knew it was. And I'm standing outside, I'm still looking around. I'm bewildered. Some guy reaches out, grabs me by the shoulder, pulls me under the eave of the building. And he says, he's trying to get yourself killed, you idiot. It wasn't two seconds later, here come another strafer. And he took off about two inches of the edge of that eave that we were standing under. So then I says to myself, the heck with this KP crap, we're not feeding anyway. 
I'm going back to the motor pool see what I can do to be of help. But on the way to the motor pool, I saw the damnedest explosion from Pearl Harbor. Well, I didn't know what it was, but I found out later that was the Arizona that blew up. It was the biggest ball of fire and smoke you could ever imagine. And I had no idea what had happened. I thought, well, maybe it was ammunition dump or something. But anyway, I continued on in the motor pool, and the only truck that was left was a pickup. So I was told to take the pickup and do what I could. Well, nobody bothered me until I got up by the big barracks that housed 3,200 men. And this guy comes running out, flagged me down. Turned out he was a medic. And he says, come with me, take your keys so nobody will steal your truck. Come with me, we got wounded, we got to get them to the hospital. So I went into the building with him and we brought out four guys. Two of them could sit and we had to lay two of them on the floor and get them to the hospital. And then we went back looking for more wounded. we were strafed again, the medic and I, and I don't know how this happened, but the bullets came through the center of the truck, tore out the back window and the windshield, and bullets through the roof. But neither one of us got hurt. We didn't even get cut from the glass flying. That was number three that I went through that could have killed me. I was very fortunate. I was very lucky that day. Well, we did this for the next three or four hours that we picked up wounded. And uh, I think one of the most grisly scenes I saw was there was this one guy laying there, and I went to check him out. I rolled him over on his back, and as I did, his intestines fell out of his stomach. That was a gruesome sight. Well, the rest of the wounded didn't bother me as much as he did. Oh, it was the usual things, uh, chest wounds, shoulder wounds, arms blown off, uh, broken legs, Few of them were crying. Some of them were screaming with pain. And some were cursing like mad. Oh, God. It... it just kind of gets to me. It was one horrible day, all those wounded and all those that were killed. Now, when we found a dead one, we didn't pick him up. He was beyond help anyway. We picked up the dead later. When I went back to Hawaii one time, I went back before the Arizona Memorial was finished. And we had to take a little cruise ship, or boat, from um, Kowalo Basin, downtown Honolulu. 
and they took us out into the ocean, past uh, Honolulu Harbor, uh, into Pearl. Now this little excursion ship took us around all the different ships that were damaged and sunk that day, and it saved the Arizona for the last. And uh, the commentator on the boat, he was also describing what happened. And he got to the Arizona and he talked about how it was sunk. And then he said, you know, the Arizona, there was 1,177 men killed instantly that morning. And uh, the Arizona, even though she lays at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, has never been decommissioned. And she never will be. Because you see, her crew is still aboard referring to the 1,177. And that gets me every time I talk about that. I'll never forget that man's statement. And you're listening to Ed Hall and him recounting the gory details of Pearl Harbor. 3,400 casualties, 2,300 Americans killed. And by the way, before Pearl Harbor, American foreign policy was largely isolationist. When Hitler invaded Poland, only 16% of Americans thought we should send troops to fight Nazi Germany. After Pearl Harbor, 97% of Americans approved of Congress formally declaring war. But to listen to his voice crack when he said, it just kind of gets to me, it was just one horrible day. You remember the biggest ball of fire and smoke that he'd ever seen that had ever happened, and that was the Arizona being struck. Ed Hall said there were 1,107 men instantly killed that morning. The Arizona, though, has never been decommissioned, and he never forgot those words he heard about the Arizona and why it wasn't decommissioned, because her crew was still on board. A special thanks to Rishi Sharma. What a project for a young man to drill down on, wanting to interview every surviving member of World War II in the Allied forces. And if you know any living heroes of the Second World War, reach out to Rishi. Heroes of the Second World War.org. He wants to capture these stories. Edward Hall, a part of our Heroes of the Second World War series, here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and today our own Alex Cortez brings us the voice and story of Trudy Kathy White the author of the book Climb Every Mountain. Here's Trudy with some stories. You know, when I was a little girl, I used to look out into our backyard and I saw this massive looking mountain and our family used to climb up this mountain and watch the sunset and in the springtime, in the summer. And so I've just always kind of been fascinated with mountains. For me, mountains have been a symbol of 
of God. It's just when I'm in the mountains, I feel so close to the Lord. When I look at the mountains, I recognize the fact that they're so unchanging. They're always there. They were created by God. They're just a reflection of who God is in terms of his character, his faithfulness, and his love. You can just count on him. In a changing world, he's the one thing that never changes. But at the same time, I look at these mountains and they remind me they're kind of a symbol of life's challenges, that life is hard and it's difficult. And when we're going through difficult times in our life, we feel like we're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And it seems like, you know, the, the more we climb, the harder it seems to get. And so I was in a really dark season of my life and I was kind of thinking in my mind, boy, does anybody else have to deal with life like this? Am I the only one? And then of course I realized, well, of course I'm not the only one. Everybody has problems and challenges and, and difficulties. And I thought, you know, I think I'll, I'll just want to write about personal stories of challenges that I've had and how I have found God to be faithful in every one of those. And one of Trudy Kathy White's very first mountains was who she was. Going off to camp as a little girl, my parents took me to overnight camp and I went to a girls camp. My brothers went to a boys camp. And I loved being at the camp, one, because there were mountains, but two, because I could kind of be who I was. And everywhere I went, I was introduced as, you know, this is Trudy, the daughter of Jeanette and Trick Kathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. Or, you know, I was introduced as this is the sister of Dan and Bubba Kathy, my two brothers. But at camp, I was just Trudy. And it was good to be in an environment like that where I could kind of just be myself. When I got older, I served as the director for another camp for about 13 years. And when the campers were coming in for their first day at camp, parents were bringing them in. Parents would come up to me to introduce their children to me and they would say, uh, you know who this is? This is Trudy, she's gonna be your camp director. And then the next thing they would say is they said, but do you know who she really is? And then they would say, she's the daughter of the man who invented that Chick-fil-A that you like to eat. And that, that was just, you know, over and over and over. And when people would say that comment, do you know who she really is? I, I would think in my mind, you know, I understand what they're saying, but that's not really who I am. So in my old self, I, you know, used to think about if I only look at what I do and who I am, it's not a very good way to kind of really understand my identity. In terms of what I do, I, I do a lot. I'm a speaker, I'm an author, I'm a representative with Chick-fil-A family. And in terms of, you know, who I am, my goodness, that's a loaded question. I'm a grandmother, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of things, but that doesn't define me. And when I stay right there with those questions and those type of answers, what it does for me is it causes me to play this comparison game. So I start looking at other people and I say, well, I can do this, but look at what they can do. Why can't I do what they do? Or this is who I am. I wish I could be like this person. So we, we compare ourselves all the time. And my mother used to tell us when we were children, she would stand at the back door as we would leave out for the day. And she had this little phrase. She would say, remember who you are and whose you are. And when we hear that statement when we were young, I don't think we really got it. But later on, it was so important that we realized who we are, because you think about the fact that I am because He is, because God made me, that's why I even exist. 
And you kind of ask, well, am, am, I, am I my own? You know, do I have, do I get to make my own choices? Do I get to, to make all the, the decisions for my life? And I realize, hey, you know, I'm really not my own. I've been bought with a price. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for me. So the Bible says that he paid the penalty for my sin. And actually, who I am is all wrapped up in who God is and what he's doing through my life. So it gives you a whole new perspective on life and you don't have to compare yourself to other people. You just try to walk the walk that God has given you and understand how you're wired and how God has gifted you and recognize the fact that the value that comes in your life because of that. More mountains popped up for Trudy, especially when she and her husband decided to enter a foreign land. John and I were missionaries in Brazil for quite a while and when we first went, we realized that we were gonna to have to learn Portuguese and Portuguese is a difficult language and it's hard enough, particularly if you're an adult, very, very difficult. And I remember one day I just kind of had it. I thought, I, I, I want to go back to the States. I can't do this. I, I went in my bedroom. I remember I shut the door. I was really, really angry with the Lord and I began to cry and I just poured my heart out to him and I said, Lord, you know, I, I'm trying so hard. I just can't do this. My daughter was four years old. You know, she's young and she's catching on to the language. And she got to the point where she could understand and, and speak things better than I could. So I depended on her a lot. I took her with me. If you can imagine a four-year-old, long blonde hair, blue eyes, and here's this mother so dependent on her little girl to help her with the language. But one day we were shopping together, and I couldn't think of the word that I needed to use. So I asked her how to say the word, and she told me a word, and I said it to the Brazilian lady there, and the lady acted like she didn't understand me. So I asked my daughter Joy, I said, tell me that word one more time and let me say it to the lady. And she gave me a word, I said it. But the third time I looked around and my daughter was laughing because she just made up a word. It wasn't Portuguese at all. And I realized what she was doing. She thought, you know, this would be a fun game to play with my mom. She doesn't know the language very well and she'll repeat anything that I tell her. So, <laughs> so she made up a word and it was not funny at the moment. In fact, I was totally embarrassed. I, I thought she was being extremely disrespectful and I put her in the car, I got in the car and, and we left and I went home and that was when I had this moment, this encounter with the Lord. I, I put her in a room and I went to a room and I tried to hash this thing out with the Lord because I, I told him, I said, you know, my own daughter's turned her back on me. I don't know what I'm going to do now. You know, it's like, I don't have any more help. I don't have any more resources. And then the Lord kind of hits me over the head and says, Trudy, you know, I'm the one you need to depend on, you know, not your daughter. I go back to that moment many times, even now, and I'm reminded that, okay, I'm encountering something that I think is going to be difficult or it's going to stretch me, but I'm going to depend on the Lord because I feel like this is the thing I need to be doing. And I think that's an awesome place to live your life because I think God really wants us to step out of our zone every once in a while and do some things that maybe we've not tried before and allow Him to show what He can do through us. So that's amazing. I think that's a big part of this idea of just walking day to day in a personal relationship with the maker of this world. And you're listening to Trudy Kathy White. And by the way, she's author of Climb Every Mountain, which you can buy at climbeverymountain.com. And what a unique voice. And my goodness, she was mad at her daughter when she shouldn't have. Her daughter didn't disrespect her. She was just having a little fun with mom. And if mom had had a better sense of humor and was in the space that she needed to be, she could have enjoyed it. But that's where she came to depend on her relationship with God to get her through that moment, to set her straight. And for so many Americans, myself included, that relationship with God is primal. 
and Christians, Jews, Muslims. It's a primal relationship. And then for all the non-believers out there, well, we tell your stories too, and we're sensitive to all of them because this is a country filled with all kinds of good people trying to do good things in their own way. And my goodness, Trudy Kathy White is just such a person. I mean, going to Brazil to do mission work and help people in need, this isn't just a casual relationship with witnessing to her God. This is honoring her God, and we need to see and hear more stories about what people do that's positive because of their faith. Trudy Kathy White's walk, her stories, her voice, it all continues here on Our American Stories. with Our American Stories and Trudy Kathy White, who's sharing some honest and vulnerable stories from her book, Climb Every Mountain. You know, health is something that we all really appreciate and value and are blessed when we've got good health. But, you know, John was feeling super great, went to the doctor and got diagnosed with cancer. And it was a hard blow. Um, when, when John got that news, we realized that his dad's health was failing. In fact, just a few weeks later, his dad passed away and John was facing surgery for his cancer. And, and it was a really hard time. And then after the surgery, John thought, well, that's it, I'm, I'm cured and it won't happen again. But sure enough, you know, two years later, he was diagnosed with cancer again and had to go through radiation treatment. And that was when things seemed like, you know, really gloomy for us, it was like, okay, this is probably going to be it. Will John be around very long? And it wasn't a good time at all for us. You know, every day John was going for radiation treatment and I would ride with him in the car and we had a little book that we read together, riding together to the hospital each time. And then when we would go and sit in the waiting room there, you know, you begin to see the same people over and over. You've got to go every day. We were there Monday through Friday for six solid weeks. and. And so we began to see some of the same faces, and I, I kept a little book with me that just was my journal that I would write in from time to time. And occasionally when I would sit there while John was back getting the radiation treatment, I would just kind of look around the room and see people that were there, and I began to try to use that time, rather than feeling sorry for myself and thinking, I wish I was somewhere else and not here, I began to try to use that time to pray for the people around me and even got to sometimes have conversations with them. But I would begin to document those times of sitting in the room. And so I put those in my book to try to help people see. These are some of the things that were kind of going through my mind. On day four, I wrote down, you know, emotions seem heavy, mostly because of the unknown. I'm thankful to cast all my cares on the Lord because I'm confident that He cares for me. And my prayer was, You are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. 
And then I began to, you know, I, I didn't write for a few days. And then we got to day seven after having such a heavy heart. On day seven, we were there. I wrote, beginning to recognize the same people coming in for their treatments. I'm finding myself drawn to pray for those who are here. Some are all alone. I'm thankful to walk this journey with John, whether convenient or inconvenient. It's good to affirm my commitment to him when we got married in sickness or in health. I do. Just two days later, on day number nine, yesterday, a man sat by me waiting on his wife. She's getting both radiation and chemo treatment. They stay at the Hope Lodge in the Atlanta area and they return home each weekend only to find grass to cut, bills to pay. He told me that they're both so very tired. My prayer, Lord, meet the needs of this dear couple. Give them a sense of your hope today. Give him patience and love as he cares for his wife. Sustain them today. So what you see happening in my journaling is that, you know, this particular day nine, I'm already beginning to kind of shift my focus to other people. Uh, which is so healthy for us to try to do when we're going through hard times to look at what are the needs of other people. I may be needy right now, but boy, there are other people around me that are needy as well. So when I get to day 11, whether in suffering or success, in strength or weakness, in greatness or defeat, His grace sustains. He gives the victory. Next day, Day 12, finding today to be hard, not for John, but for me. Getting up, getting dressed, going downtown over and over, eventually seems tiring. Prayer, please let me be John's number one supporter. Let me keep my eyes fixed on you. Give us laughter in the journey, joy along the way, increased faith in you for whatever the future holds. Day 38, which is down the road a bit. The end. It's now in sight. The days have really been long, but thank you, God. You have used our children and our friends to offer so much support through prayers, texts, cards, calls, words of encouragement and promises from your word. Today, I cling to Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Looking back, and John's actually doing really well now. His cancer is in remission, and he's back up almost 100% in, in work and everything. But going through that time, it was interesting because it caused us to have some really important, necessary conversations. We had to talk about, okay, what would happen if John passed away, and how would I manage life? And, you know, we would talk to our children about this. And, you know, those are things you don't necessarily feel like you want to really talk about, but it's very interesting that we all plan our days, we plan our calendars, we kind of talk about what we're gonna do next week or even a month from now, and we really aren't even assured of life uh, for even the next day, and yet we plan for it. And, but we rarely talk about death, and we know that death 
is a reality and it will happen. We don't know when it'll happen, but we are assured that we are not here on this earth forever. And so we talked about the things that we probably should have talked about maybe even sooner, but when you're facing the reality that death could be knocking at your door, then it kind of forces you, I guess, to begin to have those kind of conversations. And so out of those conversations come some really sweet, sweeter and richer relationships, I guess you could say. I know that John and I, you know, we've been married 41 years, but wow, we are so much further down the road now just because of the season we've walked through. I wouldn't ask to walk through it, but having been through it, God has used it to strengthen our marriage for sure. I would encourage parents that, you know, when you have a difficulty you're facing, whether it's death or it might even be a wayward child and it's tough on you as a parent, the best thing a mom and dad can do is stick together and not let that difficulty pull you apart because it is easy to kind of withdraw and you got to pull together in your time of difficulty. So I look back on it and I say, God has used it to pull our family together to be even closer now. So then we turn around and then both my parents have passed away. So those are heavy things to deal with back to back. And I remember just, you know, the fact that they were gone and sitting and thinking, okay, now what? I, I really am orphaned. I don't have a mother or a dad. And it was a season of about three, four straight years of having that kind of loss in our family that was very challenging. It's interesting when I was just a, 10 years younger, 10 years ago, I used to think, well, it shouldn't be that big a deal if your parents pass away, if you're already an adult, and particularly if they've lived a long life. That that's not shouldn't be a really heavy loss. And I was kind of shocked just to how hard it was to here I am in my 60s and my mom and dad are gone. It, it feels very heavy, and I would not have really understood that from other friends in earlier years. If they told me their parents passed away, I would think, well, you know, they're probably dealing okay with it because. After all, they're adults anyway, and it's not true. So it's it's hard to really understand what somebody else is going through if you haven't walked through it or at least in some form or fashion experienced yourself. Grief is real and we have to be very sensitive to that for people when they're walking through and what we should and maybe what we even shouldn't say. Oftentimes, less is best. The less you say, sometimes people just need an arm around the shoulder, a pat on the back or just a real sincere I'm so sorry. And a lot of times they don't need to hear a lot of words. They just need to know that you're there. And just as we talk about when we walk through grief, it's important that you remember that God is with you. I think the presence of people around, your presence is very powerful. And many people avoid being with somebody maybe who's walking through grief because they say, I just don't know what to say to them. You know, it's kind of awkward. I don't, I don't know how to carry on the conversation with them because I know that they're dealing with something that's very difficult. And yet, the very thing that they need might be just your presence, just to be there with them. You don't have to really carry on a lot of conversation. Oftentimes, it's just the little things that we do that can make such a big difference to encourage other people. My dad often said, there's an easy way to know if people need encouragement. And he said, if they're breathing, they need encouragement. And so, you know, we're all living life and we all need someone to encourage us. And so if we can find a way to encourage people around us through a word or an action or just our own presence, I think it's so important and it brings some healing to the grief that people are going through. And great job on that, Alex. You've been listening to Trudy, Kathy White. And my goodness, if you're breathing, 
you need encouragement. What great wisdom and words from a father, and what true words. And what a walk that Trudy had to walk, not only with her husband suffering from cancer, but then losing two parents as well. And it's true, no matter how old you get, losing both of your parents means, well, there's no one to talk to and call up when you need some help and encouragement from those wise voices who had loved you all those years. And by the way, what she did in that hospital ward, how many of us go into that ward and just put our heads down, but that she looked around and looked for opportunities for grace and love and mercy and and camaraderie, Uh, just beautiful. And what a beautiful voice, a much-needed voice in this world, in this time. Trudy Cathy White, her story. By the way, the book is Climb Every Mountain. Go to climbeverymountain.com. Trudy Cathy White's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Oxford, Mississippi, which is where we broadcast just about an hour south of Memphis, and we have a small town of about 20,000 people when college is in session and when Ole Miss is in session, and we're the home of Ole Miss. That can spiral up to about 50,000 Oxford, Mississippi's new police chief has good reasons for why he chose to overhaul his department. And as you are about to hear, every one of his reasons has a memorable story. My name is Jeff McCutcheon, 39 years old. I have spent 18 years of my life as a law enforcement officer, but that's not really how I identify myself. Anybody that knows me knows I'm a husband uh, and I'm a father to, to two girls. And and that's kind of my, my groundwork. Uh, I grew up uh, just down the road from here, about about 30 minutes in, in a little town called New Albany. My entire family basically grew up and worked in the furniture factory. My mom still does. My father's a pastor. And I, even in the summers of college, I would go, uh, go back and work. And I, I tell people that because, man, I'm blue collar, you know, hard worker. And I saw that in my family, and that was ingrained in me. And I'm proud of that. I'm really proud of that. It, it's made a huge impact on me. And, and a lot of times you, you hear people, how oh, you, you rose to the top because of someone you knew. Or, you know, the reality is, man, it, it's those that, that get after it and, and put their head down. And, and I was blessed, man, my dad being a pastor. We moved a lot from time to time. And you had to learn to make friends. You had to learn to talk to people and uh, played sports growing up from the time I can remember, man. If I if it was a ball or somebody was competing, I wanted to be in it. Had a really fun high school time. Um, my senior year, we won a state championship in basketball. And man, it was amazing. You know, you work your whole life for that moment and got through that moment. And then I was like, gosh, what next? Like, I didn't prepare for that. And so going into college, you know, just trying to figure out, man, what do you want to do? And, and I'd always loved uh, one, being outside, but being a part of a team and had this interest in law enforcement. And uh, the summer that I turned 21, I was back working, uh, doing landscape at this furniture company. And a, and a guy working there was, I was telling about what I wanted to do. And he knew uh, that the sheriff's department just down the road needed uh, some jailers. And I said, man, I'll, I'll do anything, right? You know, I mean, that's, just want to get my foot in the door. And so the 
about a week later, I got a shot, and uh, the, the sheriff gave me a chance to work for him in Tippa County, and man, it changed my life. You know, you 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 experience things in life, and then you have this 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 light bulb moment to go, man, this is why God put me on this earth. And I'll never forget uh, the jail administrator. He was a former sheriff uh, of that county, and an older older gentleman, and sat me down, and he said. He said, son, have you ever you ever driven by or walked through a cemetery? And I said, well, yes, sir. And he said, there, there's a start date and there's an end date. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, don't matter. All that matters is what's in between in that dash. And he said, there'll be people that walk by your cemetery one day, and it's that dash is what's going to matter to them, how you lived your life and how you treated them. And he said, you're going to learn real quick in law enforcement that how you treat people goes a long way for them and for you. Those encounters are important, and people are important. And so, working in a in a in a small jail, man, you you had to learn to talk. You know, it, at the time, uh, we worked swing shifts and uh, on night shift from midnight to eight in the morning. There was two of us, and somebody had to stay in the control room. So you were by yourself if something went south, and until somebody else got there, your partner couldn't come out. And you learn quickly how to talk, how to de-escalate. They weren't teaching us that at the time, but that's what you were doing. You were listening to people's stories. You were empathizing. You were trying to make good decisions, not based off force, but based off leverage of using, using my words, using my compassion to get what we needed to get done. And uh, so shortly, I did about a year stint there, a year and a half, and I got an opportunity uh, to be a patrol officer for the Batesville Police Department. And I spent about a year there. Uh, incredible opportunity, incredible time. I, I equate a lot of what uh, what I learned initially as an officer to my FTO. He was unbelievable in teaching. Like he truly took pride in teaching me how to do things, why we do things, how it makes impacts. And I, you know, when you go, I actually got to do my FTO before I went to the academy. And so when I got to the academy, I felt like, man, I. We just got to get it over with. Like this guy had me so well prepared. We were in classes. I'm like, oh, we done that, done that. You know, it was it was huge for me. And you know, I've always been grateful for him for doing that. And but while I was at the academy, I was uh, I was there with about six or seven guys from the Oxford Police Department. And and so Batesville and Oxford are pretty close. And uh, I, my wife and I just got married, and we were living here in Oxford. And so I still connected with those guys. And Sure enough, uh, one of my classmates was actually going to relocate to the Jackson area. And uh, he saw me uh, at the gym and said, man, if you want to come over, now's a great time. And fortunately, uh, in 05, I got an opportunity to move over here and, uh, and start working at OPD. And uh, so coming to OPD, did uh, just like everybody else, you know, you go through patrol and you serve as a patrol officer and did that for a few years. And we, we were starting back a grant program to do DUIs. And uh, so I got an opportunity to serve as a DUI officer and did that for about six months until uh, an in, a criminal investigation spot opened up and was really fortunate to get that position. There were a lot of guys that put in and had an incredible captain that going into that position, I, I would say I was pretty headstrong and driven with, with blinders on, you know. Not a lot of forethought in what I'm doing. There's a mission. You get the mission done and let's roll on. And, and don't ask a lot of questions. And he was completely the opposite. He was super patient and, 
and, and very coachy about the way he would do things, and which would drive me nuts because I'm like, give me a case. I don't want to. I don't want you to see me again until I solve it. Like I'm gonna be on the street, you know. And and he would constantly reel me back in and slow me down, and and we would debrief cases. And and, and again, I, I didn't understand it really well. And and even in my time at the jail, I, I, I thought I understood dealing with individuals and why that's important. But uh, when I became an investigator, I really, really learned because. You go, you, you go and you deal with situations where people have been victimized. Uh, and, and that could be from a property crime or, or that could be from, from a personal victimization. And the heartbreak that you see, you know, and the fear in their eyes. And many times you're their last hope. You know, can you get me answers? Can you help me? Can you solve this? Can you put the person away who did this to me? And... At that time, we were struggling with, with a rash of property crimes. I, I think for a year or two, man, we were averaging like 365 a, a year, which, you know, in a small town like Oxford, man, every day somebody's getting their house broken into. You know, that's that's a big deal. And and I, I found a little bit of success early. And, you know, like, like with anything else, you find that success and you're like, oh, man, I, I, I got to get more of that. I got to craft myself better. And to, to, come, to come back for somebody... Um, I've never been a, a, a victim of a burglary, but when we've sat down and talked with these people, it wasn't about that you stole my stuff. You violated my peace of mind. You know, you took something from me. I, I, I may never feel comfortable back in this house again. And to knock back on those doors to say, hey, that person's in jail, and oh, by the way, I got a truck coming. I got all your stuff back. To see the, the, the just the color in their eyes change, it would you understand why law enforcement officers get just get lost in this job because there's no feeling like that you know we even now we'll, we'll brief our newbies on hey when, when this moment happens i promise you i'm gonna have to kick you out of this office because there's no feeling like that again no home run you ever hit no walk off three when you help somebody and you absolutely change them man there's nothing better so Went through that, uh, did about six and a half, almost seven years of investigations. But in that time, we had some cases that, that we took to, to court and thought they were just jam up good cases, you know, really solid cases. And I'll never forget, we had a multiple burglar case and had several people that um, had already, you know, taken pleas. And, and we took it to trial and we had a witness, saw pretty much everything that went down. They saw people pull up. They saw those people go around the house, come back with stuff. We were like, we're good. Multiple people had already taken their, their guilty plea. The jury came back not guilty. And I remember sitting there like, whoa, how did we lose that? And so we get an opportunity to go back and talk with the district attorney and say, hey, we need to find out how, how we can do better. What happened? And he said, you don't have a relationship with this community. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, man, the reputation of your department is not great. They, they, they were like, you know what? Eh, there was about a 30-second window. She didn't see such and such. So, no, not good enough. And that moment then reminded me and, and dawned on me that every encounter we have has got to be spot on. Every time we go in a gas station to, to get a drink, we need to be smiling and speaking to people. We need to be personable. We, we need a relationship with our community. 
And it, it, it was at that moment where you begin to change who you are and, and how you do things. So a lot of times, even as a young officer, I, I didn't mean anything by it or think anything by it. I'm focused. So I pull up at the gas station, man, I'm getting my drink and get back because I'm, I'm trying to do work. But you miss all of those moments in between. Another teaching moment, we had a, a case where an individual took their life. And again, young investigator, he's trying to teach me to, to look beyond just what's in front of me as a big case investigation. And he made me go back and trace the steps that that person took for the 24 hours prior to that moment. And so what I found was that that person actually was out the evening of shopping for the items that they would then use to take their life. And I, and I just remember going back and replaying that that video and and i i kind of stopped watching them after a while and i started watching the people around them why didn't somebody hold the door for you know could could i've been that person on on that aisle that would have looked at them and just spoke or maybe just a smile or that moment at the register you know how many moments have we missed in our life for people that are just struggling internally that those gestures may have pushed them one more day and then it, maybe somebody picks it up the next day. And so when you, when you begin to see all of this in your law enforcement career and you begin to be shaped by the images that are in your head, and, 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 and man, sometimes those are traumatic, you have to then either bury them or you have to use them for the greater good. And during that time as an investigator, that became my mission. So my wife and I got into uh, ministry work with, with students and Again, you're, you're kind of crafting yourself at all times. You know, what am I learning? What am I seeing in the world? And we found out that all of these people that we thought were what we would call okay, when you get into a world where you start encouraging people and building people up and lifting them up, and you see their, their whole mannerism change, and you're like, wow, I, I did that through encouragement of you? And then you get to talk to them like, yeah, man, I... I really was in a low place and that word of encouragement or that positive message or just that, that hug or that smile, man, that, that was huge for me. That, that pushed me to the next day. And so I continue on uh, as an investigator and then an, an opportunity popped up that I thought would, you know, never consider myself an op a person that would be on the administrative side. But we had a major of operations position open up and, and I put in and was just, unbelievably blessed to have that opportunity and so you go from jailer to the street officer to DUI officer to investigator and, and in between all that I, I had some SWAT time and probably been here four years where we had a hostage situation and our team actually had to make entry and do a rescue and you know the the things that that you pick out of that is you train all these years and all these hours for one moment but that one moment is critical to someone else and so it helped to remind me that the little things that we're doing on a daily basis, that we can't take them from just, oh, it's just mundane work, or it's mundane training, or this is not important. That, that moment that you have to use it, it's important to someone. It's important to those men that were in the stack with me. That I, I was a team leader at that time, and I hadn't even been a team leader probably two or three months, and we had that event happen. And you know, all you can think about is, did I do everything to prepare these guys for this moment? Am I prepared for this moment? And, and, and it turned out good. We were able to rescue an individual and not hurt someone inside. It was a perfect scenario. Um, 
But you take all that and, and, it, and it begins to continue to shape you and shape who you are and how you lead. And so as major of operations, we began to focus on that, that personal touch of law enforcement. And it, uh, it, at the time, it was Chief Joe East. We, we took a complete turn in law enforcement for OPD into what we call community-based policing where we focus on community events and going out and meeting the public. And, you know, we were met with a lot of frustration in that because that's not the style that people were used to. And even for me, I was like, man, I don't know how this is going to work out. You know, I mean, we're cops. We got to go out and, you know, take care of things. And so, uh, so that was 2014. Uh, that summer, I got to go to Quantico. I spent two and a half months in Quantico at the FBI Academy. And, just met some incredible people. Uh, got to take some some great classes on leadership and communication and learning about what other places are doing it and, and how they're doing it. I'll tell you what I learned is in the South, you know, we talk about hospitality and we talk about those things. It's, it's legit. Like, it's real. And the way we treat people and interact with them is completely different than other parts of the world. And it made me appreciate how we do things because... I would be out with some of the buddies and they would be from different areas of the country and I'm I'm a yes ma'am, yes sir and, and the people are looking at you like, What are you doing? And and it's that respect that goes a long way because it opened up other dialogues and opened up other conversations about just different things because now you're approachable. And you've been listening to Jeff McCutcheon, Oxford, Mississippi's new police chief, and talking about this switch to community policing and to building relationships inside the community and how that makes a difference. And again, send yours to OurAmericanStories.com. By the way, if you like what you hear, we are a nonprofit, and always we're looking for support from our listeners. $5, $10, $25, whatever you can spare. We work hard to bring you these stories, not the ugly, not the bad, not the insipid, the stories that, well, we all want to hear. Go to OurAmericanStories.com. There's a donate button. Give what you can. Let's continue with Oxford, Mississippi's new police chief, Jeff McCutcheon. I'm country as it is. So, you know, being in the subway in D.C. and talking, you guys, people are just looking at you. And you're like, yeah, I'm not from here. I get it. <laughs> so 2019, he decided to, to run for sheriff. It opened up the chief spot for an interim role. And I was fortunate enough to, to receive that and uh, become the interim chief in 2019. And he was still the guy, right? I mean, because he's still running for, for office, but I'm trying to hold the seat. But it wasn't one of those things where I wanted to just sit on my hands and say, well, you know, we'll, we'll just, let's just keep everything as it is. And I, I, I don't feel like that's leadership. I don't feel like that's helping the, the men and women that you serve with. And I, and I definitely don't think it helps your community. And so we just decided, let's, let's run it like it was ours, all right, let's just don't sit back and wait for things. I, I don't want to be a counterpuncher. I, I want to be the first. And so we crafted a new mission statement. And so our mission statement was completely people-driven. We didn't want to do anything that wasn't people-driven. So every phone call that we take, every traffic stop that we make, every call that we go on is tied to a person. There's nothing in law enforcement that you do that's not people-oriented. I don't care if you're out directing traffic. You're dealing with people. You're dealing with people in those cars. And the way you present yourself and the way that you, the way that you interact with them in every situation 
absolutely matters. Go back to that, that new investigator who lost a case that should have been a good one because we didn't have that relationship. So we began to just focus on relationships and people. Last year we did over 2,000 hours of community service. And, and that could look like camp cops or that, that could be snow cones with kids. I mean, we, we try to literally look for any and every opportunity that we can get around people and just be people. You know, don't be a cop, just be people. Uh, next, I think it's next weekend, maybe in two weeks, we will go uh, to one of the doctor's offices and they're doing a drive-through flu shot for children. Well, one of our captains, he's just reading the news and saw that they were doing that. And he said, I'm gonna call them and you know, when you get a shot, you typically get a sucker, right? We're gonna set up a snow cone station. So when they drive through and roll the window down and get a shot, they pull right up and we got a snow cone with you. And it's gonna be a guy or a girl in a uniform smiling and giving you a fist bump and a snow cone. Those are the things that we wanna instill in people of the good that's happening. And you know, it's a little thing, but you never know where that kid's gonna be in four or five years that they may give information to an SRO or they just may have a total different perspective about law enforcement. And, so it's not a maybe a maybe not a tomorrow impact, but it's a seed that's being planted, and and then it's somebody else's responsibility to water it and help it. But we began to just focus on relationships and people, and so our mission is this: to serve with wisdom and compassion, and to create a safe and connected community. That's it, because I think everything that you tie in, I don't care what stats you you use, fits in that mold. And so we wrote it for keywords. And we preach this constantly to our officers. I mean, they get tired of, we're going to talk about it almost in every meeting. Are we focusing on those things? Because, number one, we're servants. So we got to have a, a servant's attitude. we got to have an others first attitude. It can't be about us here. Our role here is strictly to make someone else's life better. It's not about what we get out of it. It's what we give out of it. That's our goal. So, number one, we got to be servants. Two, we've got to have wisdom. We've got to make good decisions. So we talk about uh, just a phrase or what are all my options? You know, and when, when you're looking at a situation, when you're on a call or a traffic stop, man, what are all of my options to fix this? Too often we are, do I take someone to jail? Do I not take someone to jail? Do they get a ticket? Do they not get a ticket? There is so much in between there that we can meet a need. And so we begin to talk about that. We want your decisions to be wise in what are all of your options to get through with this. What are all your options that is best for you in a safety manner, but it's also best for the person that you're dealing with. And when you think about that, man, Oxford is such a blessed community. Like if, if you need something in Oxford, there's probably a nonprofit for it. If someone's hurting, there's probably a, a group that will, will meet that need. They just need to know about it. And so we began giving our officers information on, on, on all of these nonprofits or all of these community help organizations and send it out to them in an email and say, listen, save that in your phone. When you get in these situations, man, go back to it and just, maybe it's not an arrest. Maybe it's not a ticket. Maybe you just say, hey, call this number. Take a screenshot, call this number. They're going to take care of you. Or you call them and bring them to you. And then so we, we want to be wise in our decision making. We want to see the big picture because everything matters. Everything is important when you're dealing with people. And then to, so, to serve with wisdom and compassion. I know for me, there's been people that have shown me compassion in my life and it changed my life. But they didn't just change my life, they changed my kids' life. They changed their kids that are going to come because that's what I'm going to teach them. 
And so for us, we want our officers and our staff to think every time, how can I show compassion? Right? When it, we realize that not every time we can show compassion. Sometimes people do have to go to jail. We still te- treat you right. We still treat you like a human. We still keep that servant others first mentality, but I still may have to take someone to jail. Someone may talk themselves into a ticket, okay? So compassion may not work that day. They, they, they didn't allow that to take place. But our goal is always to show compassion. And, and we tell our guys, I don't know that there's a ticket in Oxford under $200. I don't know that if we write you any citation on the side of the road, it's going to be under $200. So take that thought and apply it to this. If I, if I give them that $200 ticket today, they may have a child at home that doesn't get to sign up for OPC soccer or OPC baseball, or they don't get to go on this trip that the parents have been saving money for. It's not just a ticket. It's greater than that. There's so many times that a word of encouragement, like we talked about earlier, does more than a citation, than punitive damages. Man, showing love a lot of times will pay itself forward. And that's what we want to do first. So we want to serve. We want to do it with wisdom. We want to do it with compassion. And then we want to create a safe and connected community. And so when you when you study law enforcement, I was fortunate enough to be at the FBI and when Ferguson happened. And we got to debrief that every day in our media class. And we talked about, hey, how did it go wrong? Why, why is there not a dialogue in the community? Well, you got to keep your community connected. So we say, let's keep it safe and connected, because I believe we can do it both. It's not always easy, but I believe we can do it both. And so we phrase it this way to our staff. I can keep your street safe. I can put that thing on lockdown, but I can treat you like a jerk every time I deal with you. And so you're safe. Your car's not going to get broken into. Your family's not going to be victimized. But I treat you like crap. You're not connected to us. Now, equally, swing it the other way, and we can be really close buddies and go have lunch and work out and do all those things together, but I keep letting your house get broken into or I keep letting one of your family members get harmed. Well, we're connected, but we're not safe. We have to find that balance. And searching for that balance is no duck walk, but looking to try and do it and really have intention while doing it. Now, that's a big deal, and you're listening to Jeff McCutcheon, And he is the new police chief here in Oxford, Mississippi. Sometimes we do stories about our own town. And what a dilemma for that cop. And he said, sometimes you give a ticket, sometimes you don't. But those aren't the only two options. There's a range of options in between. And that $200 ticket. And he said, $200 is the minimum here in this town. It's a minimum in a lot of towns. That's a lot of money to a family. And so as you're writing that guy up for doing a 55 and a 40 and you have a chance to warn them or a chance to take $200 out of the family budget. Well, that is an ethical dilemma for that cop on the spot. What do you do? And how do you do the right thing? Well, here in Oxford, we're we're working on that. And I think a lot of towns and police forces are all across the country. Now let's continue with Jeff McCutcheon and his story. What we know is this. If we put 80 of our officers out at at one time, all 80 of them, they'll never see what the community sees on a daily basis. Because there's 25 to 45,000 people here at any given time during the day. We need that connectivity. We gotta have that trust so that they will talk to us about their issues and then we gotta go meet that need. 
And so for us, that's that's been our goal. That's been our vision. That's been our mission. And and to keep it super simple. And and for me, I try to make sure that the life lessons that I've learned is what we apply here because I've seen it. I've seen it work. I've seen it work in my own life. For me, every day I start each day with a journal and and I start my journal with six circles. And then in those six circles are first Peter five, two through six. That's number one. Don't lord your position over people. You use your position to make it better for somebody else. And you do it with humility. Let God deal with everything else. Then Proverbs 2, 7, 1, 7, iron sharpens iron. That's my next circle. How am I sharpening myself as a husband, as a father, as an officer? I think that too often we lose who we are. You know, I, I'm not just a cop. That's not who I am. I'm really proud to be a, a cop. I love it. I'm very proud of this profession. But, but at the end of the day, that's not who I am. It's just what I do. But I've got to make sure I'm being the best version of that to my wife and my children. Because I can come and, 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 and be the best officer that I can be for this community. But if I'm not serving them, I'm, I'm really missing the point of why I'm on this earth. I, I don't want my legacy to be here. I want my legacy to be left with them. You know, and... Um, I had a, I, it's happened, but I've only had one guy in all of the retirements that I've been to in law enforcement. Only one guy has ever stood up and said, I'm with the same woman that I started this career with. And I'm sure there's been a few that have, you know, that, that didn't highlight that. But when you go back and you start looking at the retirements that you've been to and you go, it's not many. It's not many that were able to keep their family and... Uh, I was I was telling the, the football coaches yesterday, I, I've been to some of the retirements where the, the kids aren't there. Like, they don't come. Like, there's dad was a cop. He wasn't a dad, you know. And and it's hard, you know. It, it really is hard from a time standpoint and energy standpoint when you deal with certain things here. And then you pick your kids up and you're just like, man, I'm mentally drained. But I think it goes back to that whole foreverness mentality of if it doesn't have an eternal impact, man, you've got to be strong enough to get it out of your life because your family needs your energy. And so the third circle is joy. So it's Jesus, others, and then you. And that sets that others mentality. And that kind of helps me remind myself, look, it's not about you. You're deep on the bench. we got to do this for other people first. And then we crafted a little, the last three are kind of for here, positive culture. Like it needs to be positive up here. There are times when it's tough. There's times when it's dark. There's times where traumatic events happen, and and it can change you for the negative, and it can make you hard, and it can make you disgruntled and cynical. We want to be positive. We want to be upbeat. We want to make sure that you want to come to work, because if you're coming to work and you want to come to work and you're following that mission statement, we're going to get it right most of the time, and that's the goal: is not to send them out frustrated but send them out with a specific purpose and to know what that purpose is. Uh, and then questions are greater than reactions. For me, I know I've got to be patient and I've got to ask questions. Hey, how did we get to this point? You know, what, what, is, what, is, what are all my options? You know, we want to ask those questions before we make a, a snap reaction. Because again, I don't want to be a poor leader that hears information, snaps on somebody, and then come to find out, ah, I didn't really get all the details. Because I, I, I've seen it over my 18 years. These men and women go through so much. The, the toll and the scars that they, they endure for this profession, I respect that. I honor that. And I'm going to do everything that I can to be the best version for them. 
so that when we go through these moments, we don't make it harder on them. The job's hard enough. The job's stressful enough. I don't want to be an extra one. I want to find ways to make it better for them. And then the last thing is just encourage. Every day there's, there's a way to encourage someone. Every day these guys and girls are doing good stuff. We've got to make sure we give them attaboys. We've got to make sure that, that, that we put we have a system, a guardian tracker, that keeps up with, with uh, positive and negative behavior. Every day we're trying to put something in that guardian tracker for someone to say, hey, we see you. You keep doing that because I believe rewarding that positive behavior instills what we want. And they are doing things so good. And we are in a society right now where law enforcement has taken a lot of, uh, just a lot of beatings right now. And for those officers that are doing it the right way and trying to make their communities better, we got to remind them that we see you and we appreciate you. Those are the goals. Each morning, right, uh, right beside that, I'll, I'll do a hashtag and four Fs. And, and I tell my girls, that reminds me of my report card, so I want to you know, do better. But it's, it's faith, family, and forever. And those are kind of my grounding points. I, it's very busy up here. And, I mean, it's busy from the time I wake up, I'm reading emails, and something's going on. I'm making sure we're doing what we need to be doing, right? I mean, that's, that's the position I'm in is to try to bless our community. And so when we see things, we've got to deal with it. But in that time, I have to remember what I am. And one, faith, faith is, is that navigation for me. And I've got to make sure I spend time trying to learn and be the best leader that I can possibly be with the purest heart. And then my family, which kind of grounds me, you know, they keep me where I need to be. Am I focusing on them? You know, am I spending time, genuine, real time with them? And then forever, I, I tell people it's foreverness. So if if whatever I've got going on in my life, if it doesn't have a forever impact, I, I, I really need to move on from it. You know, I, I'll check social media, but I'll kind of check for what's happening quickly in the world and what the pulse is around Oxford. And then I try to get off because whatever free time I have, I want it to be allow myself to be spending time with my family, spending time with my faith. If it's going to draw me away from those two things, I need to get away from it because it's going to make me poor up here. And, and I need as much energy for here as I can possibly have. And so, you know, I think for me, those are the focuses, the simple things. I try to keep it simple. I'm not great when I'm trying to juggle a lot of things. I know that, and I know that about me. And so I try to keep my life simple. I, last night I had a little free time, and, and there was a college football game on, and my daughter was, was getting ready to go to bed, and I thought, hey, turn that off and take these last 15 minutes to just listen to her. How was your day? What was going on? instilling those things into her and if we're not careful we get so inundated with so much stuff that has no forever impact that we're going to get to the end of our line and we wasted that dash you know that's my biggest fear is we've got this huge opportunity not just as a police chief but as a husband and as a father to make that dash impactful and i don't want to i don't want to get to that end rope and realize that I wasted 25 years of my life with my thumb on my phone when I could have been doing something for somebody else. You know, there's there's so many needs around us that if we will just be open to it, just like that that investigative case where I'm watching the video of this person, I don't want my eyes down. I want my eyes up looking for someone that we can make an impact on. And you know, I I want to do I want to do 10 more years. I got to do five. I'd like to do 10 and. I'd love to pass the torch on to someone else and 
carry on that mission of, of another's first. As I feel like if, if we do anything in this world, we were all put here to make life better for somebody else. When they took the interim label off and, and I, I became the chief, I sat in here one day and uh, I just started writing letters to people that had impacted my life. And man, one of them was a coach, and he man, he was a hard coach. He was he was stern. He was hard nosed, but he took us to a different level than we could have got to on our own. That we could have gotten to with just an encourager. I mean, he you knew the line, you knew the standard, and you didn't cross that. And he made us so much better. And and then there was another guy I wrote a letter to, who was a, as a little kid, as a little leaguer. I, I never forgot this. I was, we were warming up for an all-star game. It was a tournament we were playing in baseball, and I, the ball just would not land in my glove. I'd stick it there, and it just wouldn't stick, you know. And so as a little kid, you're emotionally so fragile. I was like so down on myself. And, and he put his arm around me in the outfield that day as we were warming up going, you're fine. Calm down. It's, it, it is okay. You know, you got this. And I wrote him a letter to say, you know, you have no idea that moment, what that did for me as a kid, that I now use for our people. And, and just like John Wood, hey, sometimes you gotta be stern and here's the line, and then there's times you gotta know when to put your arm around somebody. And, and you, you, you gotta develop a feel for that. You know, that's, there's no blueprint, that's a feel. And you know, those, those guys made impacts on me that now I'm trying to pay, pay it forward to other people. But, you know, my thought is, you do right, you keep doing right, and then whatever happens, it just is what it is. You can always hold your head high. And you've been listening to Jeff McCutcheon, and he's the new police chief here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast, where we do the show. It's a home of Ole Miss, the home of Faulkner. B.B. King wasn't born far from here. Elvis Presley wasn't born far from here. And so much of what we know as American music and literature springs from this space that we call home. And again, if you have stories about ethical dilemmas, we'd love to hear them. Send them to us at Our American Stories. A young police chief's people-first policy. Jeff McCutcheon's story here on Our American Stories. <laughs>